Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, probably one of the best preachers of the 20th century in England. And one Sunday, he got up in the pulpit to preach. And when he came down from the pulpit, a dear older woman in his congregation said, well, I see you were up there alone this morning. (laughs) And I think by that, she meant he wasn't accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit as usual. So would you pray for me this morning? I don't want to be up here alone. I want the Spirit of God to inspire all of us this morning, mainly because I have this sense that the Lord is stirring things. Now, I know what I sense, and $3.50 will get you a cup of coffee. Remember when we used to say that in 50 cents? <laughs> we'll get you a cup. That's a different story for another day. But nevertheless, these little rays of hope, hope for revival, have been stirring hope in my heart and replacing feelings of hopelessness. One of these rays was a week ago Friday. I led a, a small conference uh, down Anson Street, a couple of blocks to St. John's Church. And I told them the story of the great revival that began there in 1857 and swept the entire eastern seaboard of the U.S. I've told you that story before. You have worshiped with me, many of you, in that building. But I want to highlight some of those things for those of you who may not know. Two blocks away, A congregation joined together for prayer, for day after day after day, just for prayer, night after night. And then one night, John Gerardo, probably the greatest preacher that America has ever produced, began to preach. Because he said that he felt as if a surge of electricity had struck his head and filled his entire being. And so the preaching began and the revival again over the course of eight weeks. Up to 2,000 people gathered from across the city, from every background. Hundreds and hundreds of people came to faith in Christ. Every church in Charleston grew. The revival spread from here to Buford, a church in Buford, in the course of three days, received 400 new members. Quote, The spiritual atmosphere over Charleston was altered and a window for revival had been opened to the entire nation. Right here, two blocks from us, powerful revival. I am reminded to have hope. And then there's this second ray. I don't know if you've been reading about what's been going on at Asbury College for the last week and a half. This continuous prayer and singing and repentance and preaching and people lined up for blocks to get in. Time will have to tell what this is, whether it's the work of the Spirit or not. But regardless, regardless, I'm reminded that that's how the Spirit of God can work. He is powerful. He works in ways like this. And he does bring revival. So I'm reminded to have hope. I'm reminded to exchange despair for hope. I'm reminded to never give up and never give in. You and I must believe. We must pray as if revival can come. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return 
once again to 1 Peter chapter 1. So I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles now and turn to 1 Peter near the very, very end of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. But when you found your place in 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've prayed through song, we pray now again that you would speak to us through your holy, eternal, inspired, infallible word of God, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So before God revives the world, he generally first revives his church. Andrew Bonar, famous 19th century pastor, Scottish pastor, Presbyterian, youngest brother of famous hymn writer, Horatius Bonar writes this, revivals begin with God's own people. The Holy Spirit touches their heart anew and gives them new fervor and compassion and zeal, new light and life. And when he has thus come to you, he next goes forth to the valley of dry bones. Us first, and then the world. And so my prayer for this morning is the truths that we will see through this word revive our souls. Give us fervor for Christ. The zeal to pray and offer living water, the living water of Christ to the dry bones who do not yet know him. Some of the the greatest theological concepts in all of Scripture are found right here in these first two verses of 1 Peter 1. And this morning, we're going to look at four of them. So for the first concept. Look with me in verse 1. Peter writes there, to those who are elect exiles. Now we've already talked in the past couple of weeks about being exiles. And so I just remind you and warm your soul this morning with the good news, and this is good news, you and I don't have to struggle for an identity. And so many people do. We don't have to attempt to create an identity for ourselves. And so many people do. They get stuck in the muck and the mire of attempting uh, to be like the world or, or, or striving to stand out and be noticed. Look at me. Look at me. No, here's the good news. God himself has already noticed you. He's called you out of the world even while you're in exile in it. He is even now 
fitting you and me for our new home in heaven. He's blessed you and me with his spirit and his word so that you and I can love different things than the world loves, so that you and I can have different thoughts than the world has, so that you and I can value things of eternal significance instead of the transient and fleeting things of the world. I hope your soul is revived by the identity that God has given to you. I hope that this identity elevates you above the things of the world that are dragging you down so that you can embrace the things of Christ. But then Peter writes that we're not just exiles, but that we are elect exiles. Election. Ah, then sings the soul of the Presbyterian. And well, it should. Because the word elect that Peter is inspired to write by God here means simply this. Selected or chosen. Elect means selected or chosen. And long before Peter was inspired by God to write these words of his electing love, Moses wrote about them in Deuteronomy 7. God says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Does that warm your heart? The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Yes, you are an exile in this world and a citizen of heaven because God chose to rescue you through Christ. God chose to rescue you out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer you in to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. That's what God has done because he loves you. My purpose this morning is not to defend election. It's all through scripture. It's just to call you to embrace it as a beautiful expression of God's love for you. To encourage you to give up the contortions through which you have to go to make God's love for you about your lovability or about your wisdom to make the right choices. No, God chose you. I could never figure out why this is a reason for such offense. The electing love of God should warm our souls. It should ignite them with passion for Christ. That he chooses any person at all. Amazing. That he should choose me. Overwhelming. (laughs) Humbling. That the perfect, holy, holy, holy God of the universe, the God of unapproachable light, would set his affection on people like you and like me. And before the foundation of the world. That gives us hope. 
and how it should inspire us to, to pray. Because we realize that there are more elect exiles around us. Those who have not yet been identified as such. Why should we give up? Why should we give in? The electing love of God is so powerful. Peter writes over in chapter 2. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has his people out there. And his word and his spirit are powerful. And so we must pray. And we must never lose heart. That's what Jesus tells us that we should do. Don't give up. Don't give in. Be revived in your soul and pray for revival. Now look in verse 2. For the second term. For knowledge. To those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, for those who have difficulty in believing in the electing love of God and who would instead make us the center of our own salvation, they get a little excited now. And so the Presbyterians go like this and the Baptists go like this. Ah, Craig, they say, look, you condemn your own argument. God elected based on his foreknowledge because he knew I would choose him. And so they define foreknowledge most famously in this way that God looked down the corridors of time and he saw that you would choose him. And so then he chose you because you chose him. Now, (laughs) I'm compelled to burst that bubble. That definition cannot stand. You know why? Here's why. Because for God, there are no corridors of time. For God, there are no corridors of time. Time doesn't exist independently from God. Time itself is a creation of God. God is beyond time. God sees all time at once. That's why he's God and we're not. Please imagine the chaos of a world where God had to wait to see everything human beings would choose to do and then attempt to put that plan together somehow based on that. To somehow stick our choices into his plan instead of having a plan which is good and perfect, and well-pleasing. That thought does not comfort my soul at all. That thought creates within me chaos. It makes me feel like no one is in charge. makes me feel like life is random. How many times have you said to a friend or maybe your spouse in response to something really unexpected that they said or did, well, that was certainly random, Please imagine forming a good and perfect plan around our randomness. Let's cast aside that definition of foreknowledge. 
The word that God inspired Peter to use here in this verse means simply this, and you can confirm it in any good Greek lexicon. Foreknowledge means predetermination of God's omniscient wisdom and intention. Say it again. Predetermination of God's omniscient wisdom and of God's intention. That's foreknowledge. And interestingly enough, the only time, other time this word is used in the New Testament is also from Peter. He uses it in the very first sermon he ever preached on the day of Pentecost. He said this. He preached this. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of sinful men. Now listen. It cannot even be considered that the cross was a random act that God did not see coming or that took him by surprise. It cannot even be considered that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did not agree to the cross from all eternity past. It can't even be considered that God needed to wait to see what would happen and then come up with the cross in response. Jesus knew he had come to die. He didn't wait for the actions of others or the rejection of others to determine the plan for his life. In fact, when Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer there and that he would die there and that he would then raise again, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And you know what Jesus' response was to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen, the cross was a thing of God, a plan of God. By his foreknowledge and predetermined intention and omniscient wisdom. That's why we have the cross. Our salvation is all of God's grace, all of his love, all of his goodness to us. So shall we set aside this misconception of foreknowledge that's so desperate to make us the ultimate deciding factor in our salvation and reduces foreknowledge only to our salvation. Look, our salvation is of utmost importance. Watershed event for all of our lives with eternal impact. But the foreknowledge of God goes way beyond that. The foreknowledge of God goes to all our lives. And that's what's so soul-stirring about this concept. The essence of the word simply means this. God foreloved those he elected. He foreknew you. All of what your life would be. And still he loved you and elected you. He foreknew you. All of what your life would be. And still he loved you and elected you. 
And I'm going to keep saying that until we get a hearty amen. He foreknew you. All of what your life would be. And still, he loved you and elected you. There you go. You were not an afterthought to God. You were a before thought. He wasn't waiting to decide about you, to see if you would be good enough. No, he foreknew you and still he foreloved you. He knows you still. He loves you still. That's the good news. And if I might quote from my favorite Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. In our fluctuations of feeling, it is well to remember that Jesus does not change in his affections. Your heart is not the compass by which Jesus sails. No, Jesus sails by his own love that does not fluctuate and his complete knowledge of us for all of your life. The Father will always know all of your life. For all of your life, your Father will always know all of your life. That's your joy as a believer. You always get to say, my Father knows. That's your hope. You get to say, my Father knows. I'm never out of His sight. My Father knows. Nothing happens to me apart from the knowledge, His knowledge, my Father knows. So, even during the toughest times, he's not separate from or ignorant of, but included in what's happening. Listen, the tough times are not the time to abandon the Father, to deconstruct your faith because something the Father wants for you or for your sanctification or because he requires something of you or has allowed something to happen to you. No, don't give up, don't give in. Draw close to your father, because guess what? Your father knows. Now let's move to the third concept, also in verse 2. The sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification. What glory. We read about it earlier this morning in our worship. God has made you holy. God has set you apart for him. By His Spirit, when He called you to faith in Christ, God sees you in this very minute as holy because He is looking at you through Christ. And I pray that this does not degrade Christ or what He's done by comparing Him to a filter. But I do it because we know how to use filters. We download the filter apps on our phones so that we can change the image of the pictures we take. We can make them look like a cartoon. We can change the shading of the image. We can change the age of the image. We can change the race of the image. That's how filters work. And so know this, God looks at you and me through the filter of his son. He doesn't see you as you. 
He sees you now as you are in Christ. And so God looks through the filter of the perfect obedience of Christ that's been applied to you and me. Because Christ never sinned, because Christ perfectly obeyed, God looks at you through Jesus and sees you in the same way. Is that good news? The Spirit of God at work to make us more holy, more set apart, more like Christ. That should warm your heart and revive your soul. You have hope. You have hope for every part of your life. You don't have to stay the same. And you know those places in your life where you hope change will come. It can come through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. There's hope for the world. The Spirit of God can work in the midst of it, can call people to himself and can sanctify those people. So don't give up and don't give in. One final word, sprinkling. I must say, it's a banner day for Presbyterians. Election, foreknowledge rightly uh, defined, and now sprinkling. (laughs) All on the same Sunday. But I don't want to make light of this beautiful truth when we read about it here in verse 2. When we read about the sprinkling by his blood, we're reading of the atoning work of our Savior on the cross. We are reading about the wonderful truth of how his blood washes us clean. We sin daily. You and I did do You sinned this morning. So did I. Something we thought, something we said, something we did. And there's the blood of Jesus sprinkled on us to wash us and cleanse us. Every sin that should keep us from God, God forgives through Jesus and cleanses us. If I ask you a question, will you answer it? What can wash away my sin? What can make me pure within? Sing with me. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Does that revive your soul? What beautiful concepts are these? I pray that inspires you to seek and pray for revival in the city. The gospel's powerful. It's powerful for all kinds of people. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Charleston. One commentator calls this a fantastic conglomeration of coastal regions, mountain ranges, plateaus, lakes, river systems.
of inhabitants of different origins, ethnic roots, languages, customs, religions, and political history. The good news is that Jesus came for every tribe, tongue, and nation. All people stand in equal need of the gospel, and this is what should inspire our zeal for revival. We cannot know which dry bones that God is watering and giving life to. And so the gospel must be preached to all people. Revival can come, and it should begin with us, people chosen by God, people the Lord knows intimately, people that the Lord sees as holy, people that are daily sprinkled and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. The world needs you. The world needs you. As a devoted disciple of Christ, to be revived to be inspired by these truths. The world needs for you and for me to avail ourselves of all the means of grace that God gives to us so graciously so that our souls are ignited, not lethargic, not languishing, not starving, not drying up, but instead overwhelmed with hunger for the soul-feeding, love-inspiring things that Christ offers to you and to me The world needs you not to give up, not to give in, but instead to be zealous and to be the beautiful feet on the mountain of those that are zealous to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that needs to be revived. Let's pray. Father, revive us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Help us be lost in wonder at the depth and the beauty of these beautiful truths from your word. And we do pray, Lord, again, revive us, renew, reach our city, we pray in Jesus' name.